So welcome to worship on this good Friday. I invite you to uh, hear the text from today. It's from the Luke's Gospel in the New Testament, the 23rd chapter. And we're going to be looking at a passage from verses 26 through 34. And the message today is entitled, A Lesson from Skull Hill. But first I want you to listen to this part of an email. Pastor, do you have any suggestions for getting rid of bitterness? What do you do when you're dealing with a situation where you cannot go to the person and discuss the issue with them? Of course, we both know that this is the ideal way to handle a situation, but we also both know that sometimes that just isn't possible. What do you do when you are bitter about something that happened to you years ago, so long ago that the person at issue is no longer a part of your life and may have even forgotten about it? Or worse yet, they may not even remember what you're talking about and be at an absolute loss to understand why you are so bitter about it. And the email goes on. At the end of the day, I think that some issues are just going to have to wait until we get to heaven to be dealt with, because in certain circumstances, it just isn't possible to talk to people about things on this side of eternity. Sometimes talking to people only causes more problems than it solves. So I have decided to just deal with this as fully as possible between me and the Lord And then if he wants me to talk to the person, he can provide me the chance to do so. What do you you think of this plan of action? How would you recommend accomplishing this goal? Any suggestions? This email speaks to a common problem that many people have. And I know that what it's like on a personal level to struggle with bitterness regarding things that happened many, many years ago. And you do too. As this note indicates, there's no quick or easy answer. After preaching on forgiveness numerous times over the years, I have come to the conclusion that forgiveness is first and foremost a matter of our heart, which means that it is a process. It's not a one-time event. It may be that God intends that we should struggle with this on some level over a period of time. I know that flies in the face of feel-good theology, but the struggle to forgive can ultimately make us stronger because it humbles us. It causes us to realize our need of the Lord, and it destroys our pride. It helps us to see our own sin more clearly, and it causes us to rely on our brothers and sisters in the Lord for help. We always need need to give God time to, to work in our heart. If the opportunity arises to talk to that person, we can go ahead and do that. But if not, we can lay it at the foot of the cross and keep letting go of our own bitterness. Let's shift our focus to the gospel story that goes with this day. It's Friday morning, a few minutes before 9 a.m. It's killing time. Outside the Damascus Gate is a road, and on the other side of the road is a flat area near the spot where the prophet Jeremiah is buried. And up above is a rocky outcropping that, if viewed at a certain angle, kind of looks like a skull. You can see it eroded into the limestone, two sockets 
for the eyes, maybe a place for the nose and a place for the mouth. Skull Hill, they called it. Golgotha. It was the place where the Romans did their killing and Friday was the day and nine o'clock in the morning was the time. The soldiers were ready to do their dirty work. They were Roman soldiers. This place called Judea was foreign territory to them. They weren't from Israel. They were not followers of God's law. They were simply soldiers who had a job to do. And it happened to be that they were on the death squad. They were in charge of crucifixions. And on this particular Friday morning, their workload was a little bit light. Only three this week. They didn't know the names. They never did. And it didn't matter. They were just the executioners. And from their point of view, it didn't pay to stop and think about what they did. That was for someone else up the ladder. Guilt or innocence wasn't their business. They'd go crazy if they started worrying about things like that. They just had a job to do, and to do their job, they needed two things. They needed toughness, and they needed good technique. If they did a sloppy job, they were certain to hear about it later. So it's 9 a.m., and up the road comes a group of people. The soldiers know that two of the men being crucified are just average, ordinary criminals, the kind you would find in any big city anywhere in the world. That's no big deal. But the third man, the one from up north, the preacher from Nazareth, his case was different. They don't really know who he is. They know it's important because they sense the buzz going on in the crowd. There are more people than usual today. By the way, that was one of the fringe benefits, if you want to call it that, for being on the crucifixion squad. You never worked alone. There's something morbidly fascinating about watching somebody else die. The people in Jerusalem, at least some of them, loved to come out and watch the crucifixions. Well, maybe they didn't love it, but they couldn't stay away. Some strange magnetic force drew them back to Skull Hill again and again. But today there were more people than usual. There was a bigger crowd. It was noisier. It was rowdier. It was, they were waiting around for the action to begin. And up the road comes a parade of people led by a brawny foreigner carrying a cross. That couldn't be the one they were going to crucify, or it seemed not. It turned out to be, it wasn't. It was a man by the name of Simon, Simon of Cyrene. And the crowd was swirling around him, and behind him is a stooped figure, a man not quite six feet tall. And now he's walking, and then he's crawling, and each step was agony to behold. Half a man, half a creature from the worst nightmare imaginable. His, he had been beaten within an inch of his life. His back was in shreds. His front, front was covered with the markings of the whip. His face was disfigured and swollen where they had ripped out his beard by the roots. And on his head was a crown of thorns, six inches long, stuck under the skin. A shell of a man. A man already more dead than alive. And when the fellows on the crucifixion detail saw that, they weren't unhappy because sometimes people get a little feisty when you're trying to nail them to a cross. They didn't mind getting a person who was almost dead because it meant their work would be easier. 
They laid the cross out on the ground, and they laid the body of Jesus on the cross. He moved a little. He moaned a little. They didn't do much. He didn't do much more than that. One hand uh, was put here, um, one hand over there, wrapping rope around his arm and around uh, uh, that arm, rope around his legs, probably bent and partly resting on a small platform. They drove the spike on the forearm side of the wrist so that when the weight of the cross fell, the spike wouldn't rip all the way through the flesh. A spike in both wrists and then a spike through his legs. And when the ropes were in place, they began to pull the cross up. Jesus' blood spurted from the raw wounds. Steady now, boys. Steady. Don't drop it. It was a terrible thing to drop a cross before it got into the hole. They lowered it carefully, and then it fell into place with a thud. And there was Jesus, nearly naked and exposed before the world. He was beaten and bruised and bloody, and the soldiers stood back, and they were satisfied. A job well done. Get the dice, someone said. Let's roll dice for his clothes. What happened that day on Skull Hill was unforgivable. That's the definition of what unforgivable is. When you crucify the Son of God, you have done that which is beyond forgiveness. It is truly unforgivable. And yet Jesus said in his very first words from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Now, no one standing near the cross that day expected Jesus to say that. A dying man might scream, might even curse or utter threats, but you never heard a word of forgiveness when a man was being crucified. And yet that is precisely what Jesus offers to these, to these men who were murdering him. He offers them forgiveness. He prays that they might be forgiven. He asks his Father in heaven, the Lord of the universe, to forgive his murderers while they were murdering him. Now, it's helpful to understand how Jesus responds to his own crucifixion. He does not offer a word in his own defense. He doesn't condemn Herod or Pilate or even any of the Jewish leaders. He doesn't proclaim his innocence. He doesn't turn against God. He doesn't attack his attackers. He doesn't attempt to save himself. He doesn't blame anyone, though many were to blame. But instead, he prays. The last phrase of Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12, explains the significance of this cry from the cross. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many, and he interceded for rebels. No longer can his hands minister to the sick because they're nailed to a tree. No longer can his feet take him on errands of mercy. No longer can little children be gathered up in his arms. No longer can he reach out and touch the lame and cause them to walk again. There is no time left for him to instruct the disciples. Soon he will be dead. And as his life ebbs from his beaten and bruised body, as his lifeblood drips to the ground, he does the one thing that he can do. He prays. And his prayer is very brief and it's very specific. He prays for his murderers that God would forgive them. 
Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Among the many lessons that we may take away from this, none is more important than this. No one is beyond the reach of God's grace. I suppose most of us would agree with that statement in an abstract sense. If we have any concept of grace at all, then we understand that grace extends even to the worst of sinners. But that concept becomes very difficult when we have to forgive those who have sinned greatly against us. So exactly what does it mean for us to forgive the unforgivable? That's the problem posed by Jesus' first cry from the cross. It's hard enough to fully understand what he meant. It's even harder to know uh, what these words should mean for us. And yet we know if we know anything about God, that he is a forgiving God. Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7 tell us, The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity and rebellion and sin. Now, I want you to think about those words, filled with unfailing love. Other translations use the word abounding to describe the extent of that forgiving love. It has the idea of love that is both deep and broad. It's God's love goes to the depth of our sin, and it covers the full extent of our sin. God's love forgives because that's the kind of God he is. There might be another way to say it. He forgives people we wouldn't forgive if we were God. He saves people that we would immediately disregard. We know that God's ways are not our ways, and no place can we see this more clearly than in Jesus' willingness to forgive even the worst of sinners. And that leads me to a question that is not just theological or historical, but a question that many of us wrestle with every single day. How do we forgive the unforgivable? How do we forgive someone who has done something to us so terrible that it defies any attempt at human forgiveness? As I study the remarkable words of Jesus, two things come to mind that will help us understand how to forgive the unforgivable. First, there is something that we have to give up, but there's also something we have to remember. First, we must give up trying to force people to understand how much they have hurt us. This may be the greatest barrier to forgiveness. As many people who have been deeply hurt say something like this. I would be willing to forgive if only, if only I thought they knew how badly they hurt me. But that is an impossible standard. And as long as we hold on to it, we will never forgive and we will have a rock-solid excuse to live in bitterness the rest of our life. We can always blame it on those people. If only they would come to their senses, but they won't. If only they would see the light, but they don't. If only they would understand how many nights I've stayed awake because bad memories wouldn't let me sleep. If only they knew about my tears. If I would forgive them if they knew, if they understood, if they had some concept about what they've done. 
Now let's be honest, if we are going to forgive, we must give up all of that up. And until we do, forgiveness will remain a distant dream and we will still be chained to our past. We cannot be set free unless we release others from the burden of understanding all that they have done to us. Here's the simple truth. Often that other person doesn't even know what they've done to you. The moment I make that statement, I know that some people will immediately offer an objection. Well, you don't understand, Rod. They knew exactly what they were doing. They knew what they were doing before they did it. They knew they were going to hurt me, and they went ahead and did it anyway. When she told that lie, she knew what she was doing. When he double-crossed me, he knew what he was doing. When he stepped out on me, he knew what he was doing. When he broke the marriage vows, he or she knew exactly what they were doing. How can you even bring that up, up that subject? They knew they would hurt me, and they did it on purpose. How can you say they didn't know what they were doing? Now think about Jesus' haunting words. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Now we should underline the word what in that sentence because it is the key to the very first saying of Jesus from the cross. The key is not the fact that they do not know. The key is they don't know what they are doing. They know they are killing a man named Jesus, but they don't know who he really is. They don't understand his true identity. They are guilty of killing a man, but they are guilty of so much worse than they know. They are killing the Son of God from heaven. And when Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing, he was really saying, Father, forgive them, because they need forgiveness more than they know. Father, forgive them, because they are in desperate need of forgiveness, and they don't even know it. Now, sometimes we refuse to forgive because we want that other person to feel what we felt when we were hurt so badly. But that doesn't work and can never work. If we want, if we wait until people truly understand what they did to us, in most cases, we'll wait forever. Even when they confess and seek forgiveness, we may feel that they still truly don't understand. But withholding forgiveness will not help them to understand. They, they can never crawl into our skin and feel as bad as we felt. They can never enter into our pain. Our sorrows are ours alone. But if we make our pain the price of forgiveness, we will never forgive because no one will ever pay that price. We don't forgive because they understand what they did. We don't forgive because they suffered as much as we've suffered. We don't forgive because they deserve forgiveness. We don't forgive even because... Uh, even to gain some personal advantage over them. We forgive in spite of what other people have done to us. We forgive because of God's grace. We forgive because that's what Jesus did on the cross. We forgive because that's what Jesus did for us. Now, it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking that if we just keep talking, we'll eventually solve our problems, but that's not true. Sometimes, Talking only makes matters worse, especially when we say, but I just want you to understand where I'm coming from, which being translated means I want you to see what a fool you've been 
and how wrong you are because when you see that, you'll see things my way and you admit that I'm right. Sound familiar? See, we think things like that all the time, but as long as we insist on always being right, we will never be set free. If we probe a bit deeper, we discover another truth that flows from these amazing words of Jesus. If the first truth touches how we view others, this one touches how we view ourselves. We must remember that God forgave us when we were unforgivable. This is where the words of Jesus become very personal. We, in, we are included in his prayer. When Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing, who was included in the word them? The soldiers, the mob, the women, the disciples, Pilate, Caiaphas, Annas, Judas, Peter, all the Jewish leaders? But that doesn't exhaust that statement. You were included in the, in the them, and so was I. He was praying for us. No, no, Rod, you don't understand. I'm not like those people. I'm different. I'm not that bad. I'm not the kind of person who could crucify anyone. I'd never do anything like that. Oh, yes, we are. And yes, we would. And yes, we have many times. And yes, we'll do it again. We're not as good as we look. And if we had been there, we may have even been among those who were holding the nails. If we had been there that day, we might have been part of the crowd who was clapping and cheering. If we had been there, we might have been saying, crucify him, crucify him, stick it to him, another nail, let him have it. You see, we're not much different. And we're not that much better. When Charles Wesley wrote the hymn, Arise, My Soul Arise, he included a verse that pictures the blood of Christ crying out to God for our forgiveness. And I want you to listen to the words of this great hymn. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers, they strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransomed sinner die. Are we who have been forgiven so much, unwilling to forgive those who have hurt us so much? This is the challenge of the first cry from the cross. And at this point, we discover the hard reality that keeps us from forgiving the people who have hurt us. We think that we're better than they are. We think we would never do anything that would hurt anybody the way they've hurt us. I'm just not as bad as they are. I'd never treat anybody the way they treated me. You see, we get angry because we think we would never do to another person what they've done to us. But how foolish that is, how false, how deluded we are when we think that way. It is our false pride that keeps us from the hard steps of forgiving the unforgivable. So, would you like to become more like Jesus? I suggest you start where Jesus started, by forgiving the people who have hurt you deeply. I do not for a moment mean to suggest that that's going to be an easy task. To forgive us costs Jesus his life, and to forgive others will cost us something. 
we will certainly have to give up our anger. We'll have to turn away from our bitterness. We'll have to decide to make a conscious choice that we are going to forgive those who have sinned against us. And very often we'll have to perform that act of forgiveness over and over and over again until we learn the grace of continual forgiveness. And I'm sure I'm speaking to someone today who has reserved in their heart a place that is not open to the Holy Spirit. Because it's a private place, it's a door that's locked from the inside, a hidden storehouse of hatred and anger. It is a dark room filled with pain and anger and revenge. And we keep it locked because we don't want anybody else to know that that room is there. And maybe you even pretend to yourself that that room doesn't exist. It's a room that God will not enter without your permission. And it's very possible that some here today are nursing hatred and bitterness and a desire to get even with somebody who hurt you. And you may say, but I'm justified in doing it. You, uh, they did me wrong. And you may say, I'm, uh, I'm entirely right to do what I'm about to do. But I ask you this. How can God's Holy Spirit do his work and give you his blessing in your life when your life is filled with anger? If God is ever going to greatly use you and if your life is ever going to change, that door must be opened by you because it is locked from the inside. I can't open it for you and God won't. He waits to be invited. No one is more miserable than a person who harbors secret hatred and wishes for revenge. And no one is happier than the person who finally opens the door to the Holy Spirit and says, come on in and do your work in me. Because in that moment when you say that, healing begins on the inside. And instead of hatred, there's love. Instead of bitterness, there's kindness. Instead of revenge, there's forgiveness. And if I'm describing your life today, then God's word to you is this. Open the door. Let his spirit come in. In order to come to grips with the healing power of forgiveness, we need two things. We need soft hearts and we need courage. And some of us have been deeply hurt by the things that other people have done to us. People have attacked us. They've maligned us. They publicly humiliated us. They physically uh, have humiliated us, physically beaten us, sexually assaulted us, re ridiculed us, belittled us. They've done it deliberately, repeatedly, and viciously. And in response, we choose to become hard on the inside to protect ourselves from any further pain. But that hardness has made it difficult for us to hear the gentle voice of God's Spirit. We need soft hearts to hear His Spirit. And then we need courage you see, the timid will never forgive. Only the brave will forgive. And only the strong will have courage to let go of the past. All of us know that it's easier to talk about forgiveness than it is to do it. And if we're honest, we know how much we suffer when we forget to do what Jesus did for us on the cross. We need courage to take that giant step of forgiveness. However painful forgiveness may be, it is infinitely better than refusing to forgive. 
And we can find the courage if we will remember what Jesus said. Father, forgive them. He was talking about us. Let's pray. Father, go now where my words cannot go deeper into the inner recesses of every heart who's hearing this message today. Show us the truth about ourselves. Forgive us for not forgiving others. We long for the freedom that comes from letting go of our bitterness. So break the chain of remembering hurts that bind us to the past. Soften our hearts so that we can hear your voice speaking to us. Show us what we must do and then give us the courage to do it. And we pray it in Jesus' name.